Have you heard? 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 about mass shootings in America, but because, it's just as David said, we are going to be the last mass shooting. Just like, just like Tinker v. Des Moines, we are going to change the law. That's going to be Marjorie Stoneman Douglas in that textbook, and it's all going to be due to the tireless effort of the school board, the faculty members, the family members, and most importantly, the students. The students... Welcome to Have You Heard? I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. And that voice that you just heard belonged to Emma Gonzalez, who's emerged as one of the most forceful and passionate advocates on behalf of gun control, part of the this movement of students that's emerged in the last two weeks or so. And like everybody these days, Jack and I have been pretty transfixed, wondering if this movement of students could at last change something when it comes to access to guns. Gun control has famously gone nowhere over the past few decades despite a number of moments where it seemed like there was a clear opening uh, for policy change. What's interesting about this is that we're seeing a truly student-led movement that is gathering momentum not only at Stoneman Douglas High School, but well beyond that uh, across the nation. In that audio clip we opened with, student Emma Gonzalez dropped the name Tinker v. Des Moines. That was the landmark Supreme Court decision on student rights. And it all started when 13-year-old Mary Beth Tinker showed up at school wearing a black armband to protest the Vietnam War and got sent home. The growing movement of students demanding action on guns today is part of a long and often unreported history of kids speaking up and walking out of their schools. There's a long tradition of student protests and indeed student demonstrations and strikes in this country, but most of it has been local in the sense that it's been focused on the local school policies that affect the kids directly. So a dramatic example is here in Philadelphia, where I make my home. On November 17, 1967, over 3,000 students marched, mostly African-Americans, marched out of school, went downtown to the Board of Education to demand, among other things, the inclusion of black history in the curriculum. Um, the year after that, in 1968, in East Los Angeles, there was a much bigger strike. We think at least 20,000 kids, mostly Chicano, that is Mexican-American, with a similar kind of goal, that is, asking the schools to address their own experience in the curriculum, but also, and this is more specific to their experience, um, demanding the removal of the ban on speaking Spanish in school. We forget that in most uh, American public schools in the South and Southwest, where Chicanos were concentrated, it was actually against the rules to speak Spanish at all, except in Spanish class. So those are two, I think, kind of dramatic examples from the civil rights era. Um, but I think what distinguishes them from the protests we've seen in the past couple of days is their focus was very much on the school policies that were directly affecting the kids. And when I say the school policies, I'm talking about the local policies. That is the policies set 
by the school district or the municipality. Um, Obviously, guns affect kids, too, quite directly. That's what they're reminding us of. But it strikes me that their target is very much state capitals and especially Congress. And that does strike me as different from these earlier protests. That's John Zimmerman. He's an historian at UPenn. And if he sounds familiar, well, that's because we had him on the program a few episodes back to talk about teaching controversial subjects in school. Zimmerman says that the role of student protests in forcing political change often gets overlooked. One way of thinking about a lot of the civil disobedience during the civil rights era is it was civil disobedience by, by, by kids, by youth. Um, either college students, as in Nashville, Tennessee, sitting sitting in in restaurants, or think about the dramatic photos of the much younger children having water hoses trained on them in Birmingham, Alabama. Right? Um, uh, you know these these were these were part of broader national movements, and kids played a hugely important role in them. Um, in, in, during the Vietnam era, you think about the protests, especially in 1970, the so-called MOB or mobilization after the Kent State shootings. Um, you find that there were, of course, big strikes and protests at colleges, but there were in high schools as well. There were anti-Vietnam walkouts in hundreds of American high schools in the wake of Kent State. Why? Because those were the people that were about to be drafted. Talk about a direct effect. Local protests where kids pushed back against some policy that affected them and only them rarely makes the history books. And that's too bad, says Zimmerman, because the example of, say, kids in Texas protesting strict hair-length rules for boys offers some really useful lessons for students today. In the 1960s, there were also a whole set of student protests in, in far away and disparate places, including El Paso, Texas, about dress codes and hair length. Um, we forget that both of those things were very strictly regulated. Obviously, all schools have dress codes, but dress codes in the past tended to be more draconian. And there were also hair length rules for boys. Um, and in El Paso, Texas, there was a widespread strike um, led by a boy who had long, fa- long hair and refused to cut it. And that was quite successful insofar as the school district and then eventually others rescinded those rules on hair length. Now, hair length is not gun control. Um, you know, I, I, you know, gun control is a state and especially a federal matter. Um, there are, you know, important and powerful lobbies that are involved in it. So in no way I'm equating all of these events, but I do think that, you know, there's a long history to draw from, and I think creative people should do that. Jack, I want to bring you back in. As our regular listeners know, you are, of course, an historian yourself. And one of the really striking themes that pops up again and again with these historical examples that John Zimmerman has been telling us about is that there's this sharp disagreement over how much say students should have over what happens in their schools. You know, we almost talk out of both sides of our mouths about students, where we say that, you know, we want to have student-directed learning. We want to have, you know, 
project-based curricula. We want students engaged in authentic learning experiences. We want them to be college and career ready. But then we turn around and treat them like children. Of course, you know, most students from most of their schooling experiences are technically children. But of course, children also know a tremendous amount. Uh, you know, we, we infantilize uh, students in many ways uh, and are loath to admit it. Uh, but, you know, we don't, we don't treat them with uh, sufficient respect with regard to having some agency over what their experiences are like uh, with regard to acting on what they know. Um, there's a great deal of control that has always been exerted over students. Some of it probably rightly so. Uh, you know, we don't want students doing whatever they want all day long. Uh, you know, they'll play video games and hang out, right? There are inherent challenges to learning that young people may be disinclined to engage in. But at the same time, uh, who knows their experiences better than they do? Um, who knows what is best for them in terms of issues like their safety better than they do? So, you know, there needs to be, in my mind, a clearer distinction between what we're fairly sure that adults know best with regard to what is good for students in school, and then what we might be just as sure a student knows best about what's right for him or her. One of the questions that I asked John Zimmerman is what makes a student protest a powerful political tool? When they work, what is it that makes them work? The first and most important one is um, the students discussing a matter that affects them directly intimately and personally. Um, you and I are not threatened by school shootings, you know, only in the most indirect way. You and I aren't targeted by school shootings. We don't go to school. They do. Another lesson, direct action, things like strikes and walkouts, where students band together to demand change, can be really effective. After the Parkland shooting, Zimmerman wrote a piece for the Philadelphia Inquirer urging students to go on strike until adults finally do something about the scourge of school shootings. Well, frankly, I think that nothing else thus far has worked. Um, I think it is useful to remind ourselves that in both the Philadelphia and the East L.A. cases that I just mentioned, there was important change that the school districts instituted in the wake of those strikes. I understand that Congress is not a school district. I understand that the burden here, the challenge is much, much greater. Um, uh, but I do think it would be useful for all of us, including the students, to remind themselves that direct action in the past has worked. Um, and, you know, those of us who are tired of reading the same headlines, um, listening to the same vapid responses about thoughts and prayers, I think we have to start considering other options. We should mention that in addition to the historical examples of student strikes and walkouts that John talked about, there have also been some more recent ones, like protests in Philly over budget cuts and in Newark, where students were demanding an end to 20 years of state control over their district, which happened not long after. The example that is jumping to mind for me is a fairly recent one from a few years ago when students walked out of classrooms in the Denver area protesting a uh, shift to uh, the history curriculum. Uh, the specific nature of the conflict was over U.S. history textbooks, 
that were going to be censored uh, because they failed to adequately promote respect for authority. Uh, and so, you know, this is a, a long tradition that continues today with students taking direct action around the issues that they feel like affect them in a way that isn't really being uh, given sufficient attention by, uh, you know, their school boards or the local media or their parents. Um, and it's a, a highly visible way of drawing attention to issues. Uh, they often, you know, face some real consequences for their actions, um, but they also have a great deal of power there uh, when they wield it. Jack, when I told people about this episode and that we were looking at the history of student protests and trying to figure out which ones had succeeded in forcing political change, they'd get very excited. But one of the points that John Zimmerman really stressed was that protest by its very nature is always an experiment, right? You can't predict whether any of this will work to affect change, but that doesn't make it any less important. One more thing that I would add to John's commentary there is that actually this is a really valuable lesson for students to be learning in school, and it often doesn't make its way into the curriculum precisely because you can't predict the outcomes. Uh, you can't work backwards from a standard. Uh, you can't give a standardized test to ensure that it has gone well, that you actually just have to trust the process. Uh, and hope that the experiment works out in some way that yields uh, valuable student learning, right? But because there is no guarantee, there's the possibility that it looks to an outsider like the lesson failed. Um, and of course, there is that possibility. Uh, but then there's also the tremendous upside that students actually learn by doing, that they become stronger citizens as a result, that this action is both empowering and formative for them in a way that inclines them toward future action. Another theme that comes up repeatedly throughout the history of student protest is that you hear adults making the claim that students aren't really calling the shots, that somebody's pulling the strings behind the scenes. For example, the largest student walkout in history took place in New York City in 1964. Some 450,000 mostly black and Puerto Rican students boycotted their schools to protest segregation, which the New York Times described as, quote, a violent, illegal approach of adult-encouraged truancy, end quote. And you definitely hear some people now implying that the students who are protesting gun violence aren't who they say they are. I think that's so interesting to think about because what it really seems to highlight for me is the difficulty of collective action, uh, that this is in fact a collective action problem and that we are so used to suffering from it that when students are able to organize themselves en masse uh, and take some action collectively, uh, that people have difficulty coming up with an explanation for that, how that possibly could have happened. Um, I was talking with David Menefee-Leiby, uh, who's a professor at Pomona, and he was saying that in his eyes, the core challenge here is a public good, private good issue where the public good is safety uh, in public schools and the private good is gun ownership. And of course, it's a much easier proposition to defend a private good, right? You only need to look after your own self-interest. The problem then is that uh, private goods are much more tangible and people 
are more inclined to take some action on those. Uh, you know, another way of thinking through this is uh, through the tragedy of the commons, which is that, you know, we're all willing to uh, defend our own backyards, uh, but, you know, the common that belongs to all of us, uh, you know, our self-interest actually conflicts with what is good for all of us there, um, that we can destroy the commons if we're looking only after our own self-interest. Uh, and this, the student piece is actually pretty interesting because the students actually, in this case, do have a collective self-interest in their own safety here. Um, but because adults are approaching this from a different perspective, uh, it's hard for them to understand why students have become so motivated and how they have managed to organize themselves so quickly. In the days and weeks following the shooting at Stoneman Douglas High School, the voices of those students demanding that adults finally do something about gun violence have been everywhere. We wanted to end this episode by introducing you to some students who are joining their cause. From cities and suburbs in Massachusetts and New Hampshire, they're prepared to walk out of school to organize actions like the March for Our Lives in Boston and to register their peers to vote. Whatever it takes to change minds and policy. Uh, I'm Olivia Landry. I am 17 years old. I am a senior at Timberland Regional High School in Plaston, New Hampshire. And I'm getting involved in this movement because um, I've never been sparked like this before. Um, and seeing these kids step up after their school was, you know, ravaged by this person is just amazing to see. Um, you know, I was talking to my friends and I was talking to kids around my school and I'm like, you know, are you going to the march? And they say, no, it's not going to make a difference. I don't really care. And I said to them, you know, you don't care until it happens to you. But when it, by the time it happens to you, it's too late. You know, it's time. We've waited too long. Too many people have died and it's just time to really focus on this and get our politicians to do something about it. Um, today, actually, at my high school, I organized um, at lunches. I made posters for each grade, and every student wrote their name and wrote a message. We're actually mailing them down to the school um, so they can hang them up for students when um, they go back. So, you know, it's, just, it's important, even if you don't agree with all the views or you don't agree with what's happening, but it's important to stand up and support those families that are going through you know, grieving with this loss. Uh, hi, my name is Michael Martinez. I'm 16. I'm a Metco student. I live in Roxbury, but I'm a junior at Weston High School. And I got involved with the March 14th um, Walkout for Action event um, because I think right now, um, to use the words of MLK, there's a fierce urgency. And so um, we have the nation's attention um, on an issue that has been plaguing uh, communities um, all around New England, all around the country for um, so long, decades um, and decades. And so I think um, we have the chance now to really solve a lot of um, issues relating to, to gun safety. And we have a lot of um, a lot of opportunities now to have discussions with um, Massachusetts state legislators to talk about common sense uh, gun reform. And so I'm just excited to start that conversation about um, gun safety in my own community, communities in um, Roxbury um, and, and communities around Boston and, and also everywhere else. So that's why I'm getting involved. So my name is Sophia Carreri. I am a senior at Beverly High School. 
in Beverly, Massachusetts. And this is important to me because I think that we need to make it safer for kids at school. No kid should have to go to school afraid and no parent should have to send their kid to school wondering if that's going to be the last time they see their kid. And it's important that we as the kids stand up for this because we're the future and we need to have our voice out there. Hi, my name is Charlotte Lowell. I am a senior at Andover High School. Um, the reasons that I'm involved in this movement um, are many and <laughs> nuanced and complex, but um, I think most of all, I'm really interested in the narrative that students are creating right now that prioritizes our lives as the next generation um, and as leaders in communities um, essentially prioritizing our lives over access to guns, which hasn't been a reality for much of my life. I remember in elementary school practicing like lockdown drills in case um, an intruder came into our building, um, which is a really terrifying thought <laughs> now I realize um, and something that is awful to consider being a part of my childhood. Um, and I've noticed, especially growing up, that it seems that our school safety, student safety, isn't a priority of um, of the government, of Congress right now. Um, and as Congress continues to refuse action on um, the epidemic of gun violence, they are, in fact, complicit in, um, I think I might call the, the mass murder of um, students and um, youth in this in this country, um, and so I'm really excited to be a part of a movement that is attempting to um, dismantle those systems. My name is Felix Brody. I am 16 years old, and I go to school in, at Summerall High. Um, so I am part of a group of students that are organizing walkouts um that are ideally going to spread throughout the state and hopefully throughout the country um so we are organizing walkouts um every wednesday to to show the our elected officials that we care and we care a lot so what we're doing is we are we're walking out of school starting this wednesday when uh the February 28th for the entire day, uh, starting at 8.17 a.m. And we are demonstrating outside of our school, and then we are going to go to a public park and um, not just walk out and that be done with it. We're going to walk out, and then we're going to be productive. We're going to um, contact senators and, con and people in Congress and people at the White House. Um, we have spreadsheets with their information, with their phone numbers, with their emails, and we're going to just flood their inboxes where this is a proven way of past demonstrations and past protests and movements that has gotten change. And we feel that if we get the and if, if we feel that if we do more than just simply walk out, it'll show that we care about our message more than just skipping school. Um, and to relate to relate back to just skipping school, a lot of people have tried to dismiss us as lazy teenagers trying to skip school and miss class. And that's not what it is. 
It's about feeling safe in places that we are legally obligated to attend. Um, 